My name is David Hershkovitz. I'm the founder of Paper Magazine, and this is Light Culture. Listen, learn, and stay ahead of the curve as I knock heads with cultural disruptors of the past, present, and future. Light Culture is brought to you by Burb, the Vancouver-based cannabis brand. Creative executive or cultural hustler. Chase Infinite is one of those guys who's hard to categorize or classify. His range is impressive. He's been a successful L.A. rapper, moved to New York City to work in retail, managed ASAP Rocky, founded Agency 78, as well as L.A.'s Haroon Coffee, which also serves up authentic articles of culture, past, present, and future on its menu. So who is Chase Infinite? Well, he's all these things and more. He's someone who soaked up knowledge on his journey and figured out how to package it for popular consumption. But most of all, the secret sauce is the man himself, a trusted advisor who's got your back. These days, he's got his hands full, not only with his multiple entrepreneurial projects, but also managing the Buffalo-based rap collective Griselda, which includes Westside Gun and Benny the Butcher. Welcome, Chase. Peace. Thank you guys for having me. How's everybody doing? Doing good enough, I guess. Things are looking up all around us, so we're optimistic at this minute. So I'm going to make you pick. What is it, creative executive or cultural hustler? Are they two different hats that you wear depending on the time and place, or is it just one? Yeah, I'm a hustler of culture for sure, but I think being a hustler of culture allowed me the space to become a creative executive. I didn't come up with that term. I borrowed that from a lyric from Chuck D, hustler of culture on uh, Welcome to the Terror Dome. So I kind of been saying that since I heard Chuck D say it. So, I mean, technically I'm a creative executive, but being a hustler of culture is a thing that kind of made the on-ramp for that. Yeah. So what does that mean to you, cultural hustler or creative executive? What is that? How does your day go by? You know, I'm just like everybody else, right? I wake up, I brush my teeth. (laughs) No, but honestly, a creative executive, I just say that because I don't like being pigeonholed in some suit that's only interested in manufacturing opportunities for money. A lot of times what I do is, you know, I want to insert myself into history and do things that I guess the new word is disruptive. But to me, it's just trying to find a new way to do things that have kind of already been done before. We don't reinvent the wheel, but just try to apply a little bit of emotional intelligence to whatever landscape I'm dealing in and rely on nuances. We form these emotional connections with people, places, and things all the time. And I'm like an archive for that. So I help architect or build these moments to plug in or reconnect with some of those emotions, regurgitate some of those emotional connections that we have to those things. Creative hustler comes from that. There are things that have an ephemeral value from a collection standpoint or things that have like a passive emotional residue with certain communities of people and shit like that. When you talk about that sauce, that's the thing that makes a campaign or an artist or something feel when it becomes recognizable to you, but you don't know exactly why. So that's what being a cultural hustler is to me, because it's not always about, you know, my personal perspective or compass has a lot to do with indigenous cultures in Africa and stuff like that. But some of the people that do it don't necessarily want that. They just want what they consider to be culture and culture in, in America's. Anything that you can sell. Oh, yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, right. I like the culture with a K, man. 
Right. You know, it's, it's a coffee culture, a weed culture, a fucking culture for anything that you can buy. Right. So when I say culture, I, I think it's more about the emotional intelligence that kind of recognizes things that people have a, a connection to. But from the beginning, I mentioned you were a rapper. You had a group, Self Scientific, with DJ Khalil in mm-hmm. L.A. And right from the beginning, you stepped out, basically coming out against the prevailing rap that was popular at the time. You immediately would say, here I am. I don't like a lot of what's going on. Yeah, it's kind of Self Scientific was, or is. It's the camera thought or the context to whatever might be popular. And rap is, hip hop is about living up to your title. You say your ladies love cool James and the ladies better love you. You know, we're so scientific. And our perspective or approach to the music is really about giving context to certain shit. So in that particular song you're talking about return, it was less an anti-position what was going on at the time. It was more pro elements that weren't really prevalent at the time, you know? Less anti, more Pro, <laughs> like you know, more pro core hip hop values, but I'm not necessarily anti. I kind of was just you know talking about what we had given into in terms of the nuances, the blanket of acceptance, you know, and we kind of lost some of the shame in our community as a result of our love of the music. Was that conscious rap? Would you call that? And that really wasn't what was happening at the time, right? Musically, yeah. I mean. You know, yeah, I guess some people would deem it conscious rap, but even that's misleading, right? It's just hip hop with a different focus. We focus so often upon the nuances of the street and the street tribes and the things that come as a result of the disenfranchised indigenous communities in America. We tend to focus on that a lot. There's some artists that are just a little bit more inventive, a little bit more expressive when it comes to emotions outside of just that. Some of it's conscious, some of it's not. Some of it's just funny. Some of it's just fucking, you know, some of it's kind of hedonistic, you know, sometimes you need an approach, but, you know, it just, but it's fun. So I wouldn't say everything's, everything that I was speaking, quote unquote, against in that song, there's not a real antithesis for it, right? Like, because even amongst the conscious shit, there's a degree of what you may consider ignorance too, right? <laughs> or fucking, I think it's really just about the balance. I, you know, what I was talking about was us just getting carried away with one particular perspective, but in the meantime, that kind of music went on to become huge, global, yeah. incredible money-making machine right. that created opportunities for so many people, including yourself today, to sure. do a lot more than maybe was possible or even dreamed of when you started out. Yeah, I think that was part of it, right? As self-scientific, we always knew that there probably wasn't a really big market for us to make a lot of money unless we were touring overseas and shit like that. We had some success doing that. But overall, artists that make the type of music that self-scientific make ordinarily weren't huge artists. But coincidentally, you know, like you said, because the genre became so big and made so much money, there's an opportunity for an artist like Kendrick Lamar, J. Cole, people that are probably closer to self-scientific than they are to like... You know, whatever you could, whatever I was speaking about against at the time. Even Drake, right? People give Drake a hard time, but man, Drake is, in terms of like the chances that he takes and the sounds that he brings to the table, and you know, being heavily influenced at one point of his career by Lil Brother and Jadilla, that shit comes through, right? So there's a there's a redeeming quality or value for him, even though he's such a big artist. Artists that usually get that big, you don't really give them the credit of being an innovator or conscious in that way. But if you think about it, you know, it really is. Right? But 
and that's the thing that makes him special is in the pop arena, he can express a degree of underground innovation that self-scientific or fucking slum village or whoever might have. So to your point, I think guys making such a business out of hip hop at the time when I was talking some of that shit, <laughs> it, it enabled people like J. Cole, Kendrick Lamar, or Drake, whoever to have a real commercial stance or ability to be a commercial artist. Cause I mean, if it was 19, as funny as it sounds, you put Drake in the era that I came up in he probably would be an underground MC, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I think you're right in terms of what breaks through in a real big way outside of certain circles where a song could be really big and successful and an artist can do very well. But yeah. the three people you mentioned there, obviously J. Cole, Kendrick, and Drake, you know, are way out in front of so many other rappers who are also successful. And all categorically conscious rappers. If you judge them by the standards of the era that I came up in, all those guys would be categorically used. <laughs> yeah, because that's actually maybe a swing right now to more cultural or content-oriented in the industry, possibly because of the times we're in. Yeah, I don't think consumers got off of it. You didn't have a real big commercial or, you know, labels didn't find it was fruitful to invest money in those particular types of black people or music, to be honest with you. Really what I was talking about was a prison industrial complex, you know, during Return. The larger context of that, I think the same year I wrote Return, I did a song called The Prison Industrial Complex. Because I worked at Warner Electric Atlantic when Ice-T was going through the whole cop killer shit. You know, I remember C. Dolores Tucker and all those people running over CDs and shit like that. And people don't know the ramifications of that shit, like long lasting, right? When you set up those types of attitudes and government tours, music and shit like that, it extends itself. At the same time, you know, they're kind of building the prison industrial complex. And the themes that were popular in hip hop music were kind of the six to eight themes that were also responsible for ushering young black men into this newly erected prison industrial complex so it's less about the nuances of music right more about the social political climate the bottom line is man listen if you tell me i can make a rap song about killing people and make a million dollars or go out and become a drug dealer and make a million dollars maybe like i'm gonna make a rap song about it right if i'm really want to have it it became enticing for people to represent certain themes when it didn't do anything except you know, it made some people rich, but it also succeeded in putting a lot of brothers in jail and shit like that. I'm talking more so about what's happening in the world. And coincidentally, that's part of the reason why the music continued, that particular style of hip hop continued to be really, really popular, you know, generate a lot of money for the wrong and the right reasons. And so when you decided that you were going to give up your being a rapper at that time, did you move immediately to New York? Or I, I'm very curious about your whole movement to New York and oh, where you ended up on the Lower East Side. I lived in New York three different times for a total of maybe 12 years. I lived in Brooklyn primarily, 751 St. Mark's actually for a long time. I moved to New York because, you know, I'm from Los Angeles, born and raised. I've, I've been infatuated and in love with New York for a long, long time. It's the Mecca in terms of like hip hop culture. So for me, it was always important to, and then my name, Chase Infinite, comes from a lesson, the nation of gods and earths. Uh, the infinite is the seven energy of the mind. I studied with the nation of gods and earths and received a lot of influence from brothers that were from New York. So New York had a major influence on me in general. I moved there 
it was almost like a uh, rites of passage for me. The first time it was being managed by a manager named Nefertiti, an artist named Nefertiti that I used to help. We used to help each other. She managed self-scientific for a while. And I moved there for like spring break. I was in college. I was selling weed. And I would go back and forth in an 83 Capri Classic. <laughs> so you were bringing weed from California to New York? Yeah, I was buying weed in California. And me and my friends had in Atlanta, and we'd drive back and forth from New York to Atlanta. So I ended up staying in New York the first time I moved there on a Delphi between Park and Myrtle in Brooklyn with Nefertiti and my good friend, Elisa. And then when we come in and live in New York at that time for L.A., underground dude was like a another level of... I don't know, intelligence or something, right? People looked at you totally different. You spent a lot of time in New York at that time because people just weren't spending a lot of time moving back and forth. Right, and there was a beef also, right, between New York rap and, and no, L.A. No, no, at that no. time. Like, see, I was never involved in none of that shit. Like, I didn't have, it was never no, you know, I'm known, and just fast forward, and this is like 90s and shit, I've known the guys from Wu-Tang because of my cousin Biggie B since they first came to L.A. And I was with those guys when they came out here, you know, a lot, so... It wasn't, and they never got caught up in none of that shit. You never heard Wu-Tang being mentioned in none of that East Coast, West Coast shit. Because they had, you know, they had a network. Like, you know what I mean? So I didn't really see a lot of that shit. Like I said, a lot of that was between two rival factions. And even that was kind of promoted. And looking back on that shit, you see how much of that shit was actually accelerated by the media and other forces. It wasn't like, you know, at the time I went to every Jack the Rapper, every How Can I Be Down, every Urban Network, you know, so I've seen all the fights. But all the, yeah, right. There are fights all the time, right? When people got killed. Not, not even all the time. Not even all the time. Like the times that it happened versus the times that it didn't happen, it's kind of ridiculous. It's really exaggerated, but it also fits the narrative that Cowboys and Indians and the whole shit, it makes all this shit very sellable and they create an incredible industry at the expense of some people's lives and blood, sweat, and tears. But I never was a victim of that shit. You know, and me personally, I never was like, oh, you from the West Coast? Like, none of that shit. It's just that travel hadn't become as prevalent for people in a certain age group. You know, like, you know what I mean? Like, I remember, like, in the 90s and shit, like, I used to take first-class fights and shit all the time and going, you know, he was an older white dude that had money or a drug dealer or, like, or some shit. Like, he wasn't that many people between 18 and 25. I think the amount of travel for people between 18 and 25 is probably an all-time high, right? Or had been before COVID. I didn't know that many people. Uh, I had a handful of friends, even the ones like dilated people, some of those guys that were constantly overseas. Like, it wasn't like we were constantly going to New York and, and the people that did, it was something different about them. It gave them an added advantage. So I think, to answer your question, I think that's why I started going to New York. I felt like it gave me an advantage creatively, like having a network mm -hmm. out there instead of having to know people secondhand. I learned about these developments and subcultures and shit like that secondhand. Like, I just was there. Like, you know what I mean? And how did you end up on the Lower East Side, like running the store Prohibit NYC? So 2006, I was living here in Los Angeles. I needed to do some work. Right? I needed some work. I just broke up with the mother of my child and I needed some money. So a good friend of mine, Damian Green, who owns a company called Community 54, used to be in Toronto. He used to be called Lounge in Toronto. I met Damien when I was working with Chuck Claire. And when I worked for Priority Records, I worked for Priority Records from 96 to like 2001, some shit like that, something like that, I don't know, 2002, something like that. I did all the marketing for Chuck Claire's album. And then Damien owned Lounge and he knew everybody in the fucking city. Damien did sales for Red Monkey, uh, Prohibit NYC. You know, he did sales for a lot of brands. He was a salesperson and he owned a 
retail shop. Damien actually plugged me with Maki Nakaguchi, who was the owner of Prohibit and owned the license for Red Monkey, uh, Prohibit NYC, and some other brand. So at the time, it was a guy named Steve Schneider, who was a Garmento from uh, New York. Damien hooked me up with Steve Schneider. Damien told me I should come down to Las Vegas and uh, work the booth at the Magic for Prohibit. I was going anyway. I need the money. So I was like, man, why not? You know, I'm sitting here doing writing for fucking AOL. At the time, I was writing for AOL, Complex, Sneaker Section, doing a bunch of writing about sneakers and shit like that because I was really into sneakers. Damien hooked me up. With Steve, I went down there and became a part of the team for four days. Did really, really well because I knew so many people. You know, it was like probably my 13th year going to Magic, and I knew so many people down there. Maki and I became really cool, and I became really cool with a guy named Shin Nishigaki, who worked for the brand Prohibit. So Prohibit was owned by Maki and other two brands we were selling. She licensed. Fast forward, I stayed in contact with him, continued to do sales on the West Coast for Red Monkey for prohibit and then maki had opportunity she was in new york she was in japan and wanted to start prohibit again but she wanted to call it prohibit nyc she wanted to do it in the lower east side again because they started the store from 2001 to 2005 and then went back to japan so i was living in la she told me she would pay me had me come out there and we could, you know, run the store, partner for this, and me and Shin, who I met previously, we get to kind of run the store. It was supposed to be a six-month thing. After six months, she kind of lost some of the distribution in New York. We had the name for Prohibit NYC, me and my partner Shin, and just continued making it. We ended up having it for seven years. But running Prohibit NYC is our company and our store for about seven years. Right there on the Lower East Side, 152 Allen Street, right next door to Reed Space. And during that time is when I met Rocky and all those guys and Mac Miller and Danny Brown, Action Bronson, fucking 40 ounce van, all the guys on the street etiquette. I sold weed sometimes. <laughs> and then people would come to the shop in between meetings and shit like that. Because, you know, in New York, when you live in Queens or Brooklyn or Bronx and you got meetings in Manhattan all fucking day and you don't live in Manhattan, it's like, what do you do between 12 and 4? You walk around, you go find a coffee shop, you go to your friend's house, you fucking hang out on the corner trying to smoke a cigarette or some shit. So my place was like, in between all those meetings and shit, you go downstairs and to the back, you can smoke your shit, whatever the hell. Invite your friends over there. So that my place became the central meeting point for a lot of people in that community. Yeah, I wish I'd made it myself, man. It sounds cool. There you met ASAP Rocky, and that became a big part of your life yep. from there. I met Riams, Rocky, all the ASAP guys there. But like I said, I met everybody in Lower East Side. They were like regulars in the Lower East Side. They would go to all the stores, hang out. So I really know Mega and Arthur and Alfred, the guys who started um, Black Scale. I've been knowing him since the brand started. Actually, I knew Mega when he still worked for Huff. Rest in peace for Keith Huff. Yeah. So I knew Mega a long time before he started his own brand, all that stuff. Rocky and those guys would go by there all the time. And I know Sir at the time. So their brand opened in the same store at, at Russ from Sir who I know very well um, when he, from those days. That's my very good friend. I love him, yeah. He's a brilliant designer also. Great guy, man. So Black Scale was sharing Sir space, and I know Sir and fucking, you know, Mega for a while. So I was like, okay, these guys are hanging out with all these old motherfuckers. Not Mega, but me and Black Scale. like, we these old people. You know, so just mutual friends. And they saw that, I, you know, I kind of was a person that was a fixture in this community, from the West Coast at least. Already, these are people I've known at that point had already known. 
six, seven, eight you know, years already when, when I first started rocking Rocky. So him being kind of into all those brands and shit, it just, it, it just helped, you know, all those guys, you know, it was, it was a huge time for New York hip hop. Like I said, Action Bronson, Mac Miller, Rocky, Danny Brown, all the guys from the Tan Boys. Kendrick shot his rigor mortis video and fully clothed by Prohibit right in front of my shop. Fucking so many things. You know what I mean? Like that whole era was being cultivated in Lower East Side. And because I had a store there, I had a chance to deal with everybody, me, and had my hand in some way involved. That's New York. That's why you went to New York in the first place, right? Yeah, yeah. That's part of it. For New York, to be honest with you, my thing was more of a, um, I need to get away. When I moved back to New York for with Mikey and those guys, I didn't necessarily need the money at the time. I wanted to dedicate myself a little bit more to Islam. And I knew that what I was going through here in Los Angeles, I just probably didn't have the capacity to do that. So I moved. I, I went away. It was, it was kind of an exodus for me. When you hooked up with the ASAP crew, weren't there ambitions to be something more than a collective of rappers, a more of a community approach yeah. to what they were doing? Yeah, they definitely had, and Yams had a real vision for them, and he had a desire for those guys to be more than just rappers. And they were already. There were several people in the crew that were already designers and painters, and you know, these guys are doing all type, anything creative. I tell people all the time, all I really did with ASAP, the whole crew was really just take their ideas and help them bring them to fruition or amplify them. You know, there are instances with things that I did creatively that I brought to the table that were my ideas, but make no mistake, all those guys are real visionaries in terms of what they want to do. It just so happens that sometimes I know the people to make the shit happen. So <laughs> yeah, well, sometimes it's really the hardest thing to do is find someone you trust and can work with. More than anything, I think that's what they would say, right? Like, they just trusted me because I don't, you know, even now, I don't overextend my hand or try to ask for money when I don't feel like I need some or try to keep it close, man. Try, try, try to keep the integrity in this motherfucker. Yeah. So, yeah, I want to talk a little bit about community, this idea of the collective. You're working with Griselda now that has that kind of element involved. Also with your coffee shop, Harun. A uh, community-based project there as well. So, uh, I happen to be reading this new book by Rob Kenner. It's okay. The Marathon Don't Stop. It's about Nipsey Hussle, a biography. And a big part of it is this idea of community and reinventing capitalism for the community, using capitalism for the good of the people. And thinking about Nipsey's way versus, let's say, Jay-Z's way. Jay-Z uses capitalism. It's basically top-down. He's making deals with the big players on the top. Nipsey was going bottom-up, trying to work within community. Yeah. I feel you're more in that vein with Nipsey. I'm going to be honest with you, both of those brothers, I'm extremely influenced and have a lot of respect for both of those brothers. Nipsey is somebody, you know, we had a chance to, and had definitely had a rapport before he passed, and had a mutual respect, and I definitely watched a lot of what Nipsey did, his fearlessness, his, his vision, his foresight, things that I definitely, and then his branding of Marathon, things that I definitely try to mirror with Harun, and I talked to him about that directly. He's part of the reason, him and Ross G, both who are rest in peace right now, is part of the reason I'm here. I had a store that was on Beverly, and I was living in the Valley at the time. When I first moved back from New York, I moved to the Valley. I had a girl that was pregnant. I wanted to be out way shit like that but something kept calling me to come back to Lamert Park and come back to the area that was so 
deeply rooted in African identity. And I think part of that is me living in Brooklyn for seven, eight years, being able to go and see so many indigenous cultures being adhered to or paid attention to on a daily basis on Nostrand, on Fulton. We can never get away from the Caribbean or African influence in Brooklyn. That was reinforcing that somebody didn't grow up with that. You know what I mean? So Lemur Park, if you've been here, is somewhat like Clinton Hills, Fort Greene, before he went to the extreme gentrification. The same energy. It's a walkable neighborhood. People know each other. Everybody says, peace, brother, when you walk around. So I just felt like what I was building with Haroon, and I always wanted to start a coffee shop. You know, because I always said, even at Prohibit, we selling these $500 jeans, $600 shirts and shit like that. But if we could just sell a cup of coffee every day, we wouldn't have, you know, because some days people don't want to come in and spend $200 on clothes. People just want to spend $20 eating and hanging out. So on some of those zero days might have been three, 400 if we just had the ability to sell somebody something besides a fucking jeans or something. So when I came back to the community, it was really inspired partly by Nipsey and Ross G, you know, seeing what Nipsey had been able to do in his community and him having so many more obstacles than I will ever have. You know, him opening the business in his neighborhood was a feat that you can't really put words on, right? Him being who he is from his particular neighborhood and then doing that for so long is an extreme example of love and selflessness, right? Because anybody, and I'm sure everybody around him told him over and over again, don't do that. <laughs> you know what I mean? But regardless, he made a real example for all of us how you can convert some of that quote unquote, you know, desperation that's in our communities into real hope and, and, and something else. So he was definitely inspiration. And him and Ross G, I mean, well, I was at Aki Bamboo, which is the Jamaican spot down the street here on Degnan. And I saw Ross G one day. My shot was still on Beverly near the Grove out here in Los Angeles. I saw Ross G one day and he just basically told me we really need that in the neighborhood. I see you doing all the dashikis and shit like that, but we need that right here. And he kind of tugged my chain, you know, I said, what, what was the purpose? Am I satisfied selling cultural wares to people who find it fascinating, but maybe don't really appreciate it? Or do I want to reinforce something in my community? What's it really about? You know, because I could sell $200 dashikis to white people all day, right? But does that really do anything for my brand? Does it accomplish anything for me and my legacy? Not really. So he kind of tugged my chain and I was like, man, you know what? I told my partner immediately then, I was like, we should move the shop to the Mert. The spots are cheaper, blah, 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 all this stuff. And we got a chance to really build something. I came here really as a result of that, you know, seeing Nip. I bought a house about 200 yards from the shop and I saw the example of Nip and Ross G and constantly think about that. And I was like, you know what? It propelled me to do it. Um, kind of with that in mind. And I told Nick that before he passed, I had the opportunity to really tell him, I'm like, bro, you know, this shit is really, really inspired by what you're doing up there. I figured if you can do that shit, then I could try to figure this shit out. Because you know how it is in small neighborhoods, people tend to leave, get the big house in LA and the hills or wherever, Calabasas or. I did that shit too. <laughs> yeah. I'm 47, right? I did that shit too, but I came to a realization in regards to like, because mm-hmm. in terms of a lot of conversation going on about black owned businesses being the next step and having leadership roles in the companies, ownership being like a big conversation right now. And this seems to be a way of approaching that. Yeah. As a person or as an artist that's been our MO for a long time, ownership 
and trying to interject yourself as a real owner in regards to the money and not just the influence, right? We got a, no problem with the influence or being compensated for the influence, but the ownership has always been an issue with us. So yeah, that's kind of what self-scientific has been about doing for self and running off the Marcus Garvey model for a long, long time. I mean, that's pretty much our MO as artists. Even me as a creative even, I try to consult or steer the clients that I work with in a direction that would maintain their ownership, even if you have to partner for a short period of time to then maintain your ownership. In the long run, I try to help them create strategies that would keep the ownership because that's just important. And it's becoming popular nowadays to talk about it, right? But, you know, we honestly been talking about this shit for 30 years. <laughs> a lot of these things people are talking about now, it's not new necessarily, but it just elevated at the higher level of the conversation at this point. Yeah. It's great to have what you're doing as an example to imagine a future where, let's say, your group Griselda in um, Buffalo, which sounds like they're doing something of that nature as well, too. They want to be in Buffalo. That's the spot. That's where their home is. And they're definitely reinvesting in the community. Conway does a lot of work out there. Westside Gun just opened a Buffalo Kids store. He hired guys from, and women, I mean, guys from Buffalo to his family to work the store. It's mostly Buffalo local artists that he's promoting inside the store, whether it be a visual artist to Libby's Lemonade, which is a young girl from Buffalo that has a lemonade company at Westside Gun has basically made it his responsibility to help blow up around the world. So I think in some way we all inspire each other, right? Nipsey inspires a chase. The chase inspires a another coffee shop, you know what I'm saying? Um, another coffee shop inspires all these people doing businesses and being innovators in their area or people that are passionate. You got to be innovative, just passionate about what you do. I think that inspires other people to be like, you know what? I'm going to spend this 10000 I got to open in my business. My whole thing with Harun is authentic articles of culture, right? All it means is popularizing things that have real context to them. So often we popularize things that don't have a lot of context or you can't have no redeeming value. Like right now, the things that are being popularized are ownership of land, ownership of your corporation, starting a business, and how well can you brand your business? These are things that can get you looked at by a girl nowadays. Like, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> that's hot, yeah, right? You, you know what I'm saying? That, that's hot for a girl. It has to get to that base level before it actually becomes that's my theory that before it starts to actually change right i read a lot of books and shit you know when i was 13 14 because i felt like i could get a cute curly haired girl that looked like she's in the day i saw video because of it you know i was like man fuck if i know some stuff about this or something <laughs> the different like it could be at the time it was popular everybody's listening to the jungle brothers and dancing and shit like that so it made sense for us to try to get into these things because it gave us value socially and that's what we talk about all the time what are the things that give you value socially? It's so lowest common denominator, so low vibration. A lot of the times that when somebody does give you a, a counter to that, like a J. Cole or a Kendrick, it's like, oh, fuck, you guys are amazing. Because everything else is just so surface and so, like, you know what I mean? I'm not, I'm not saying all the artists, but I'm saying just in general. You know what I mean? It's like everything's so surface. People don't feel shit. So how do you feel about cannabis today? Would you include that in your... Coffee shop? Yeah, I would. I would include cannabis if I could find a way to incorporate it without. Here's my thing, right? If I could find a way to do it and not have the children in close contact with it 
all the time. Yeah. I have such a family oriented business. I would need to create something special or have a bigger space for that in general, right? Like people come bring their kids here and get vegan and gluten free donuts and smoothies and they sit outside. And our people sometimes, of course, they smoke. It's California. They smoke outside, but it's outside, you know, and they kind of keep it cornered off. You know what I mean? So do you lend your expertise to people in that industry? I work with Viola as a brand, Al Harrington, his company. And I've worked with a couple of cannabis brands in, in the past. That's part of what our Agency 78, because we're such cannabis enthusiasts ourselves. We want to help define advertising, marketing in the cannabis space. So a lot of people spend a lot of money doing it, but you know, I don't think anybody's really, it's different for every brand, right? But just figuring out how to create content that's compelling for a cannabis brand without breaking any uh it's yeah it's hard it's hard, it's hard i think yeah. and, and, and just you know extending some of the shit that we did in the music industry into this space you mentioned africa as a area of of interest for you have you traveled there as well i have i haven't been to every portion of africa that i want to go to but i have definitely been to africa i saw some of the fabrics and stuff that we have from people that are still contacts that i have that are in different parts of the continent. Do you, have you been to Lagos? I have not been to Lagos. I haven't been to Nigeria yet. I have not been to Nigeria yet. I was supposed to go two years ago. It just didn't happen. The government kind of held our passports for eight days and we didn't end up going. But I have a plan, hopefully next year, or if travel opens up later this year, to go to Lagos. It seems like there's a strong scene there. I had a show with the Motherland Collective. Mm -hmm. You follow them at all? Yeah. Yeah, they're very interesting guys. Really great, great conversation. It just gave me the feeling that there was so much going on. I mean, even now, you know, the opportunities that are opening up for people here that were never available before yeah. because of the closed door, glass ceilings and those kind of things. Uh, just imagine what's out there in Africa, the talent that needs to be exposed. The problem is that a lot of them, like in Lagos, for example, they'll wind up going to London. They have this community of successful creatives. They leave the country. Yeah, I think there's artists that are changing that, too. I think everybody's kind of getting a little more localized, man. People will probably say that about Berna, but he also spends a lot of time in Nigeria, and you see the difference. I think people actually see your home base and where you're from, having that really secure is only going to up your value around the rest of the world. So even for a brother like him, who's an international star at this point, he's been probably a lot more time in Nigeria the last two years because of some, some of what you're saying, right? You get bigger when you're localized. And particularly if you have the potential to be an international artist, like it's only makes you stronger, particularly if you're from an international city. Lagos has 29 million people. You know? I know, that's crazy, right? 60% under the age of 40. So a lot of youthful energy, a lot of opinions. <laughs> I see on uh, your Instagram today that there are a lot of postings about the project that you're doing over at the cafe with the colleges. Yeah, African-American College. Association? Association. My boy, Chris Latimer, who owns the mark for the AACA, they were popular during the late 80s, early 90s, Cosby Show and all this shit. You used to see people in Grambling State University and stuff like that. So he's owned that mark for a while. And he's never really stopped. But with the resurgence and, you know, everybody being woke and having these... Uh, historical black college. Historical black colleges. Grammy stars. Exactly. There's an opportunity. He's kind of been doing the same thing for a while. We decided, he decided actually, that he wanted to do a pop-up out here. And of course, my spot is a perfect place for it because of the strong African identity in the community. So we're just going to come together for three days, 
sell some sell some wares. <laughs> and you think people are interested in that, Mark? For I think so. It's weird because it's hard for people sometimes to represent a college they didn't go to. I went to Morris Brown, so I probably wouldn't wear a Grambling State. <laughs> you just wear your Harvard shirt, right? Yeah, yeah I don't go to Harvard. <laughs> I, know. I go to Harvard either, so it's hard for me to wear that shit. Either. I don't know if I'm going to do that either. Like a Princeton shirt, I didn't go there. I went to Morris Brown, man. I wear a Morris Brown college sweatshirt, but I think there's a market. That's what we talked about earlier. That's a part of culture that has an emotional connection to a consumer that's past the age of 35. Because the design still look cool and sweatshoes were popular, there's a way to modernize that emotional connection. So that's what you get. <laughs> we'll finish up in a minute here. I just wanted to see how you feel about this combination, music, management, and branding company. It's all, it's all one for you? It's all one for me. It all falls into the same expression, you know? I don't I have a partner on the management side with Rock Nation when it comes to Westside Gun and Benny. That's the only thing we have a partner with. But strategically, help come up with creative concepts and move the needle on the business side in order to bring larger situations and amplify what these guys are doing already. And that's the same thing I do with Haroon. Or, you know, it's, it's the same mindset in a different medium with a different product, but it's the same mindset. Same mindset. I don't even do anything unless it kind of lines up that's only work with a certain type of artist it has to fit in some way it's got to fit my dna because i can't do anything outside of myself it's hard (laughs) you know what i mean i'm a creative executive not a mechanical executive exactly and and it's worked out pretty well i'd say thank you very much chasing so far you know what i'm saying i want to give a shout to burt man i appreciate the brothers uh shot burt you know good people that like podcasts i appreciate you brother for even reaching out to me i knew it took a minute but i don't do this shit that often <laughs> appreciate appreciate you sitting with me really enjoyed our talk thank you brother i'm gonna tell russ i met you too all right yeah say hi for me miss him i will hi peace peace you've been listening to light culture you can find us at shopverb.com light culture or at light culture podcast thanks again to burb You can follow them at ShopBurb on Instagram. And don't forget to subscribe to and review the show. If you would like to get in touch, reach out to me directly at David Reporting. Thanks for listening.